With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today on Backroom Politics, Politics, Detroit bankrupt city. Motown's having its financial woes. What What is the lesson that can be learned by all the other major cities in the United States? Also, why is the speaker everybody's favorite target right now? It is amazing how it is so easy to pick on the speaker. We're going to talk about that. POTUS goes on the road with new economic sales pitch and the Liz Cheney effect. How is that going to affect politics in the upcoming years? That and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live. From Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. And it is a hot and steamy Tuesday here in the nation's capital. Joining me, as they do every Tuesday, to my left, oddly enough, she is the former general counsel for the House Homeland Security Committee. She is the former Obama appointee as general counsel to the Maritime administration. She is the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. Good to see you. And to my 12 o'clock, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of the National Broadcasting Corporation for Government Affairs. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hello, Justin. Glad to be here. Oh, good to have you. And to my right, he is the former he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who's last worked for last count for presidents. He is the former uh, long-time Senate staffer, long-time Washington Insider, and a very distinguished fellow at the Simpson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Alan, how you doing? I'm good, Justin. Thanks. Uh, well, we've got a lot. We've got a lot going on. A lot to talk about, guys. And so we're going to start off with the news coming out last week. Uh, it is uh, Detroit. The city of Detroit, Michigan, has filed for bankruptcy. And as a result, uh, there is a lot of politics that are going on. There's a lot of, of, of courtroom finagling going on. Uh, last week, we had the state Supreme Court rule that Detroit filing for Chapter 9 bankruptcy was, in fact, unconstitutional. Huge, huge political, uh, huge political influx going on there in the Midwest, especially in Detroit. But I want to start off with uh, Denise. You know, we're talking about a major urban. We're talking about a major urban municipality. We're talking about what used to be a major hub of industry 
inside the Midwest and inside the United States. But we're also talking about a city that has literally lost almost half its population since the 1950s. This is a huge, huge crush to the Midwest economy. How bad is it exactly? It's horrible. It, 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 and it's not only horrible for the city itself and the city's image, but it's horrible for everybody who had bonds that were issued by Detroit, everybody who used to work for the city of Detroit, everybody who did business with the city of Detroit. They're, all, they're now all going to be fighting to see who takes primacy if and when this bankruptcy actually occurs. But, but Bob, this is... This is not something that we not. It's not necessarily new to the American people. Where we've had a city file for bankruptcy, there have been major cities that have been on the fringe of bankruptcy. Notably, New York City under David Dinkins back in the late seventies, early eighties. California has always teetered on bankruptcy, but never filed. This is the first major municipality. Uh, This has got to be sending shockwaves to other cities like Chicago like Indianapolis, where they do have some major financial issues they're going to have to talk about. What's the impact to them? Well, the impact to them is, my God, we had better take some steps as quickly as we possibly can, because the 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 cost of trying to bail Detroit out, the number is something like, is my right, 18 or 19 billion? 18 billion. Billion dollars. In, yeah, in and, liability. And they yeah, and and they can't pay their bills, much less pay the back dues they they owe on all the pensions and the benefits they've got out there. It's just and it could have been avoided had the leadership of the of the city, its both elected leadership uh and its union leadership had been smarter long time ago because they knew what the problems were, and they didn't do anything about it. But Alan Moore, how did he get this bad in Detroit? Yeah, you know, when Katrina came ashore, we knew maybe two weeks out, and then a week out, this is going to be really bad. When Hurricane Sandy came, we had a few days' notice. This has been 50 years in the making. This is the slowest of slow tsunamis. In some ways, it's even bigger shame on them because because some of this was predictable and predictable and predictable. And I I have no idea what what local officials thought was going to bail out of a of an inevitable uh, situation. Um, but you, a couple of numbers: they've actually lost more than half their population. In 1950, there was about 1.9 million people in Greater Detroit. And Greater Detroit is big. Greater Detroit is as big as Boston, San Francisco, and Manhattan put together with some left over. So it's a, it's a huge uh, geographic area. It had about 2 million people. It was the fourth largest city in America, and it had the highest average income in America because of the auto industry. But talk about having all your eggs in one basket, and that being a basket with a bunch of holes in it, uh, as we learned, um, we we watched just a few years ago as the federal government bailed out GM and, and, and it set down a template that was probably the absolute wrong signal to Detroit because the template in the GM bailout was we're going to pretty much leave pensioners alone and current workers, if they keep their jobs, aren't going to be hit very hard. Bondholders, stockholders are going to take it in the shorts and the federal government is going to be out uh, $18 billion when we're done. Uh, there isn't anybody to step up for Detroit, but, the, but meanwhile, the, the, the workers of Detroit think, oh, maybe somebody will step up and give us what they gave to the auto industry. 
it's not happening and and it's just a disaster. This this judge who stepped in and said, No, you can't do this I think this is a minor glitch because they can't pay their bills, so they're gonna either default and be forced to bankruptcy or the judges are gonna say Yep, bankruptcy is what we have to do. But there, there's a lot of other uh, uh, external damage that goes along with that. Right, but, but Bob, without getting into the legal weeds on this, I mean, Detroit filed for a, a, a class of bankruptcy, basically Chapter 9 bankruptcy, that is designed for municipal governments to do so and restructure their debt liability. Uh, so when you have something this specialized and this focused, it's got to be literally a call for help from city government in Detroit saying, look, we are underwater. Somebody's got to help us. Is this, is this something that other cities may be considering if Detroit's successful in getting their Chapter 9 bankruptcy through? Well, I'm not enough of a legal scholar to know that this, is, this, as you say, is pretty intricate and special law. But the fact of the matter is, as Alan said, the situation is so severe. And Detroit is only... Is only uh, the biggest case, and it's been there for a long time. Uh, Chicago is not a whole lot better, ex except for one huge thing. It is not a city in great distress. It is a strong city with a good foundation, lots of business, lots of economy going around. It's a solid. It's a solid place with a very serious financial situation. But I suspect that they're going to be able to do it to hold on because they do have an economic base. Detroit lost theirs, and they never, never adjusted. Denise Krepp. Jesse, I'd like to go back to what you talked about, about Detroit being the big one. Right, Detroit is the big one as far as bankruptcies, but there are other cities that have had problems, notably Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and Stockton, California. People are going to be watching the Detroit case because they're going to know what are the implications to the two other cases. So, that, you know, how are you going to use Detroit as precedent? And that's just here in the United States. When you start looking at the bonds, like Alan was talking about, we're going to have people who have been, you know, buying these bonds, looking at the United States like, are they now a sure thing? Do we want to now stop buying city bonds? I mean, and that's going to be a bigger impact throughout the entire country. Alan Moore. Uh, 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 let me expand on that notion of bonds because the municipal bonds are tax-free and they're primarily purchased by wealthy people who want a shelter income. And bond funds that are sold in, in small pieces to people who want to who want to shelter income, meaning you don't pay income taxes. You pay a lower rate, you receive a lower rate of interest, but it's tax-free to the federal government, and if you're a Michigan resident, to a, a Michigan state resident. If you blow up <laughs> billions and billions of dollars of municipal bonds, or make them, make them good 10 cents on the dollar, it's not just Detroit's future ability to borrow that is at risk, but just as cities are looking, so are investors looking and they're saying, wait a minute, if people think that you can do what Detroit did, then we're not going to buy those bonds and the cost of borrowing will start to climb relative to all, all other uh, investments and every city and state in the country will pay a penalty for that. Let's be clear though, Chapter 9 bankruptcy for Detroit does not mean that they're discharging all their debt liability, all they're asking for is the ability to restructure and refinance. Alan Moore, yeah. do you have a question? Yeah. Well, it, 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 
that's true, but what happened is before they went to bankruptcy, they talked to the bondholders and they talked to the unions and to regarding current employees and pensioners and said, particularly to the pensioners who aren't adding arguably anything today to the to the situation, and bondholders who aren't adding anything today, and said, We can offer you ten cents on the dollar. Will you take it? That's all we can do. And the pensioners said no. And the bondholder said no, and that forced the hand on bankruptcy. So when we're talking about restructuring, we're talking about massive givebacks. And if the people won't agree to them, then it'll move to the courts, including bankruptcy court, where a bankruptcy uh, referee will say, sorry, you're going to get 10% or maybe 8%. It is crap. And the other problem that you've got right now is you have a lot of cities that are taxed. They, they don't have money. So people, you know, cities issue bonds to raise revenue. Well, if the cities can't raise revenue because they can't get the bonds and on one side, and then you have the federal government on the other side saying, we're in the middle of a sequestration. We have to cut our funding to the states and to the localities. Where is all the money going to come from to pay for infrastructure changes, to pay for other needed programs that have to happen in American city. But Bob, but Bob Hines, you're, you're talking about a city right now, I mean, that is literally starving on a skeleton crew for services. Uh, Dennis Leary last year did a great movie called Burn, where it focused on a one-year span at one firehouse in Detroit, the, mo- the busiest firehouse in the country. And they could not respond to fires well enough because they just didn't have the equipment, they didn't have the manpower. Literally, you are in a in a city where houses are burning down to the ground because the fire department can't put it out. They're literally making judgment calls saying, let it burn. It's vacant. It'll clear up the land. That's one less that you have to deal with. How, as a resident of the city of Detroit, how are you able to come to grips with something this massive? You're, you're asking somebody who fortunately is not in Detroit. But you're right. I mean, it is so big and so bad Remind yourself, probably 60% of the single-family dwellings in in, in Detroit are now unlivable. No windows, no doors. They're just people left. And the city, the city, half the city is just they're the buildings. They are Detroit. When Dave Bing became mayor four or five years ago, right? When he one of the things he started doing was literally in these whole blocks of its neighborhoods, he was saying, let's remove all these old houses and let's begin to build some better, some better housing for people and, 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 and shrink the size of the city. But in Bing, in Mayor Bing's defense, he's done everything possible. He's offered free homes to police officers and now, fire department uh, firefighters to come in there just to live inside the city, just so they can get the tax revenue back yeah. to help pay for that. That wasn't successful because Detroit, the inner city of Detroit, has become, for lack of a better term, a combat. Zone. Well, you know, if there's a if there's a neighborhood of a hundred houses, and you can get thirty police officers to or and or or anybody else who works for the city to come in, you've got 70 houses that are continuing to disintegrate and fall apart and are being lived in by people who are criminals, people who are destitute and will do anything, and it's it's an impossible situation. 
the, you know, and as Alan said earlier, and I think maybe Denise did as well, the reality is this has been going on for 50 years. Detroit has never changed. It's the times will be fine. Everything will work out all just well. We're just going to keep on doing it the way we've always done it. Had our height of the of the 50s ideas. It doesn't work. You can't do it, and eventually it catches up with you. Denise crap. And the problem is going to be that the issue of bankruptcy is going to take, I mean, when you start unwinding everything and putting things back together, it's going to take time. It's probably going to take about five to ten years. But the special emergency manager that they've hired for this has only been hired for 18 months. And then he's probably going to go home. So you, we need folks in Detroit that will be there that are going to take vested interest over the long term, not somebody that drops in for 18 months and then walks out. But, Ellen Moore, when... when when we look at Detroit, though, you're talking about a city that put all its eggs in one basket. We've seen other cities reinvent themselves, most notably Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, after the steel failures, reinvented itself and has now become a major hub of all sorts of industry inside uh, the, the Northeast Corridor. Uh, you look at a city like Miami, where the real estate boom collapsed, they managed to keep above water by diversifying itself. The entire Silicon Valley did the same thing after the dot-com bust. Why did Detroit fail to make that reinvention? Yeah, I think that that uh, you know I'm, I'm certainly no expert on on probably Pittsburgh is the closest uh, example um, to uh, in that it, it did have a heavy concentration on steel. It was more diversified. It was not as big, and it was not as dependent on steel as Detroit was on on automobiles. You said, what do you do if you're in Detroit? Well. 60% of the people walked, uh, voted with their feet, and they got out of town, leaving behind uh, problems that would just fester. And uh, I, I don't have any – I'm not blaming any individual groups of individuals. Is it, is, it a lack, is it a lack of consistency in government or lack of a credible municipal government? You know, I think there's a great temptation. We see it all over the country in municipal governments, including around here in Washington, D.C. You get it in your mind that you can make promises and everything will continue to grow and somebody else will actually have to pay the bill when you make promises, in, in particular to public employee unions. Um, and that, that's just an easy one. You can't give them a pay raise now, or you can give a pay raise, but, but down the road they're going to have all of these, uh, these benefits. And these benefits are in many cases owed to baby boomers who will be retiring in the next 10, 15 years. We've got some wealthy uh, areas of the country, wealthy cities, wealthy counties, Wealthy states right here in in Washington D.C., Montgomery County, Maryland is one of the wealthiest uh, counties in the country, and they've got a huge booming um, uh, bill to pay to to public employees. So it's not in any way linked to just the Detroits. The, the auto industry connection to Detroit was really unusual, really unique, and a, and, a, and a big part of this problem. But but instead of tackling it 30 years ago and, and, and chipping away at it, it was easier for politicians to get elected by, by promising to, 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 let, to let everything continue to grow. Who, who wants to go run for office and say, I'm the best guy to slash everything we're spending on and make your life more difficult? Bob Hines. 
and it's an awful lot easier to make those promises when you know that when the bill comes due, you'll be retired. You won't be in office anymore. You'll be living the life someplace in Miami and relaxing. The reality is that's, you know, this has been going on for 50 years, I think someone said earlier. Uh, and it's, it's that you've had, you've had a combination of the union leadership and the political leadership just being willing to kick the can down the road every time anything happened. Alan Moore? You know, I think they, that, that we can sort of agree to the situation, the likelihood of bankruptcy, et cetera, and somebody coming in and saying, okay, here's what you're going to get, here's what you're going to get. The question is, where do you go from here? What what What's the role of the locals? What's the role of the state? Is there a role for the federal government here? The federal well, government? Let's clarify one thing, though. I mean, both Mayor Bing and the, uh, the special manager for the state of Michigan uh, was appointed by a Republican governor to take over the financial overhaul of the city. Both have been in contact with the White House saying, look, we need a bailout. You cannot afford to have a major city like Detroit go underwater with all of the and let's be clear pension liability is the biggest liability that the city of Detroit has they were providing services back in the heyday for retirees that are living longer that are collecting longer and that's a big nut so does the government can can the White House and Congress be convinced Denise Krepp to bail out the city of Detroit and get it back on its feet no I mean, they're not going to be, give, be able to give them a full bailout. And the reason they won't be able to give them a full bailout is because that will create a precedent where other cities will go bankrupt and demand the same thing out of the White House. What they can do, however, is use lessons learned from other things. And by that, I mean, look at the BRAC, and that's the Base Realignment Commission. You know, around the country, there have been several BRAC properties where they have turned it into you know, the land into universities, they've turned them into research triangles, they've turned it into uh, manufacturing locations. Take some of the lessons learned from other closed entities and use them here. Yeah, but let me clarify one thing, though. When you talk about BRAC, though, there are there are funds, federal monies available to those communities out that are both funded by DOD and other departments, like Department of Labor, Department of Education, Department of the Interior, that are federal monies that are allowed to them that they can tap into as grants or small loans to help so or help assimilate the community into those areas where BRAC came in. And that's what I think we should be doing is tapping existing programs and not creating something new because quite frankly if we create something new it's going to send a signal that the United States government is going to take over every single city in the United States and they go bankrupt and that is not a signal we should be sending. There's no way that uh, we should that we should decide that uh, the largesse of Washington is the solution for this. If we do, Denise is right, it will it will be even more likely in some places that the local leadership will say, "Hey, we don't have to worry about this anymore. We got we got Uncle Sam over here, and he's going to take care of us, and I'm not going to worry about it." And that's, I mean, that was the attitude, you know, Detroit had about not worrying about it, not about not because Uncle Sam was going to help them, but because they weren't going to have to be the ones who bore the brunt of it when 25 years after they're gone, the problem hits. Alan Moore, the the let's remember though, there is a reason that the federal government cares. And uh, and I don't just mean because they they feel the pain of people who are hurting. 
They care because they want a functioning municipal finance system to be out there. They want uh, workers to not fear that pension benefits are going to be slashed 90%. In the private sector, on the pension side, we have something called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. Large companies have pensions for people, and they also pay a little bit every month out of everybody's uh, pension contribution to go into an insurance fund so that if a company should go bankrupt, the workers who are promised pensions, uh, on pensions or promised them, will get some reasonable portion of that pension back. They won't get 100%. They won't get 90%. It depends on, on how much they were earning, but they might get at least 60%. There's nothing comparable to that in the, in the public sector. It's very late to be to be trying to impose something because you got a bunch of you got a bunch of municipal governments poised to go over the edge and uh, you can't just start from nothing and say okay fine we the federal government will create some insurance company with no revenue and, and give everybody fifty or sixty percent but 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 there is a federal interest in having. Uh, some kind of backstop on federal pensions and some kind of backstop on municipal finance because so much of the rest of the country looks to that for examples and relies on. But, but Denise, you know, when when the auto industry needed a bailout, we look at Ford, Chrysler, and GM. One of the big people that took this huge hit, one of the big sectors that took a hit was the unions. UAW went to the table said, look, we cannot afford for you guys to go under we will take some of the pain. The municipal government unions, i.e. AFSCME, i.e. AFT, American Federation of Teachers, SEIU, ha haven't shown at least the indication right now that they are willing to take some of the pain the way the UAW did. Does the onus go on to the unions right now and saying, look, part of this is on your shoulders, you're going to have to eat some of this? I think the onus goes on everyone's shoulder that was involved in this process. I'm not going to single out one union over another union. What I'm going to say is this is a collective effort to get to bankruptcy. This is a collective effort on the part of city leadership, on the part of union leadership, on the part of, of businesses, on the part of everybody who was involved in this but, but why wouldn't AFT, But why wouldn't AFT, why wouldn't SEIU, AFSCME, go to the table and say, what can we do to help? They haven't done that. Instead... They're protesting instead of going to the table. Yes, what, what I think we could say is that they may be protesting publicly, but I am willing to bet that there are a lot of phone calls that are occurring behind the scenes going, we have to solve this because we want to solve it. And if we don't, somebody else is going to tell us but, how to solve it. But Bob Hines, you'd think that the public perception of the unions going to the table, going publicly, saying, hey, look, Detroit is our city. We're going to the table. We will help try and fix this. We'll be part of the solution, not part of the picket line. Eventually, and I don't know what eventually means, a month from now or, or some period of time, the general population of, of the, the membership of the unions, as an example, is going to realize that they can yell all they want, but they're not going to get everything that their contract says because there's no money. Now, and at that point, uh, you know, the unions, uh, the union leadership will be be in a better position to negotiate. Right now, I think everybody is in, everybody is stunned, everybody is shocked, everybody is is just scared to death, and it's 
at some point there's going to be a recognition that uh, everybody takes a haircut, and if everybody takes a haircut, then nobody goes bald, so to speak. Alan Moore. Yeah, let's remember uh, the what happened in the uh, in the auto bailout. It was GM and Chrysler who took the federal bailout, and Ford chose not to uh, because they didn't want to have to deal with uh, with with a majority a new majority owner uh, called uh, Government Motors, um, and. And, and and the unions that you want to give credit, uh, I think uh, you're, you're you're being awfully generous because what the unions did is they said uh, we will get we'll create a two tier hiring system. We'll kind of leave existing employees alone, and new people will come in at a much lower level and leave our pensioners alone. Well, that was hardly giving at the office the the, the, the way you're describing it. If we, there had not been a government bailout of the, the, the auto companies, and they had gone into bankruptcy. Trust me, the unions would have given far, far more than they were asked to under this deal. And as I said earlier, I think that was a little bit of a problem that Detroit unions faced. They thought, wait, somebody will step up and treat us the way the auto uh, uh, industry employees were, uh, were, were, were treated, and nobody's going to step up in that way. Bob Hines. Just a, just a thought. Doesn't that say that if we had a president by the name of G. Wiz, the former governor of Michigan. Gerald R. Ford? No, 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 no. The last, re the last Republican nominee for president. His, his father was the governor of Michigan. If he had said, he said, let's not do a special bankruptcy for the auto industry, which the unions are going to get a real good sweet deal. Let's do a regular one. And we'll do what we have to do in the government, but let's do a regular one so that everybody involved in the business of keeping the automobile alive is going to be okay, but they're all going to take a haircut. Let's not give any bonuses to the guys who were working there or stuff. But, and that's what happened. And maybe, maybe if we had done something three years ago. Last question, ago, last question that before we go to break. Before we go to break, last question, Bob, to you. Did the federal government paint itself in the corner by bailing out the auto industry and setting a precedent knowing that Detroit was in the financial problems it was? Well, I think everybody knew Detroit a few years ago was on the way to where it is today. And I know, so the government must have known as but well. Bailed out but the nobody, that, you bailed out the industry that supported that economy, but you won't bail out the municipality that supports the residents in that community. That was the mistake. You shouldn't have boiled out the companies. You should have done the job right. Alan Moore. Well, let's remember. The auto companies are everywhere. Headquartered in Detroit, big presence in Michigan and around Detroit, but they tactically, strategically put uh, suppliers and, and and manufacturing plants all over the country. This wasn't just Michigan and Detroit against the world with, with regard to the auto industry. This was American pride and literally hundreds of members of Congress and senators who had a stake back home. Very different. Very interesting. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the POTUS going on the road selling new economic policies, new economic change, and economic growth here in the United States. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, 
we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Beep, 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 beep,
you know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelley's Backroom, Shelley's Backroom has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. in town, and I, I tell you, when I am back in town, or when any of my friends are back in town, or heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified, with some of the best-known brands, and some that you might even know, but might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call. I ain't coming home until the fall. And again, I might not get back home at all. And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. After a little technical difficulty, we're going to change ranks here a little bit. Talk about the president's economic message that's going out. President's in the road, taking a new economic message back to the folks in the United States. Denise? What is it that the president's got in his quiver that's new, that's different from three months ago or six months ago? It's the farm bill, and it's what happened um, in the House 
where you had a Republican-led uh, members say that they were not going to vote for food stamps. And they split off the food stamps with, with the other part of the farm bill. And not only did they do that, but you had 14 members that apparently voted to do uh, projects in their own district, while at the same time they cut food stamps for the people that need them most. So what I'm guessing the president is going to do is say, hey, wait a second, folks. You know, if you have a Congress that is supposed to be moving out and is supposed to be leading, why are they hurting the very folks that they're supposed to be representing? Yeah, but Bob Hines, that's not an economic message. That's more of a, hey, you know, more of a handout doesn't help the... It's a uh, political message, and it's a good one from him. But that, uh, that hasn't worked with the electorate, largely by the polling numbers. His approval ratings are still dropping like a rock. Well, I'm not surprised at that either. I mean, you know, the people who love him love him, the people who don't, don't. And that's where he is. Call to him. I think he'll get out there and talk about the farm bill. He's going to go back. He's going to go back, and he's going to say... I have an economic plan. The Republicans won't take it up. We think it's a good economic plan. We think it'll help bring in, uh, create jobs. It'll help the country in the long run. And by God, we need this done. And the Republicans have to respond to this. And if Boehner and and Cantor and other Republicans would have been more open and more communicative with the President of the United States and vice versa. Um, I think we would have had something more done. It hasn't been done. They refuse to do it. Whether it's the Tea Party tying them up and holding them back or whoever, they haven't done the job that they're supposed to do. Alan Moore. I welcome the president going out on the road. We have been talking here many times about the need for him. The, the question of why is he so silent is we all have acknowledged this <laughs> this slow tsunami, if you will, of of budgetary challenges of the next year's spending bill, the debt ceiling, sequestration, and so on, that this isn't beanbag. This is serious, serious stuff. We've just spent about half an hour talking about Detroit, the fact that leaders in Detroit have not done very much over the last 40 or so years as, uh, with, as this problem began to mount. And the president has been remarkably silent. The last time we really heard from him on the budget was when he was exaggerating the impacts of sequestration, but not putting it into the context of the long-term risk of these massive deficits. So as far as I'm concerned, he's turning back to that at an important point, we're coming on to some of these self-generated crises at the end of September. Uh, the Farm Bill will be a talking point, but just a talking point in that larger context of, folks, this is the most important stuff in America. Your greatest fear is jobs and economic insecurity. And if you care about that, listen to me. This is where we have to apply our energies and our focus. Bob Hines. I think Alan is, makes a very good point because in September uh, there will have to be some a continuing resolution because there will not be a budget. And there, the Senate has passed a budget, the House has passed a budget, the two chairmen of the two budget committees in the House and Senate have met and realized that there is no middle ground that they can find. That's a big problem. Just after the end of September, at the end of October, we get to the, the time when the budget, the, the uh, I'm sorry, the deficit ceiling is going to be hit. So in September and October, we have two very, very difficult situations. The more the president 
can get out and start talking about them and saying how people in Washington need to come together and we have to stop making spe speeches. And I keep, I'm beginning to hear speeches the last couple of days, both in the administration and on Capitol Hill and the Republicans, that sound just like the same old, pardon me, crap we've been hearing for the last several years in this area. Yeah, but Bob, Bob, no compromises. But Bob, doesn't the president right now have a credibility issue when it comes to the economy? You're talking about the new housing numbers, housing starts drop. You're talking about marginal jobs numbers that are coming out that aren't exactly stellar. Uh, we're, we're starting to see some economists talk about a slowdown in the recovery. Is there a credibility issue here now? You know, I'm not sure that I'm not sure there is there there isn't. I don't know, but I do know this: the economy never goes on a straight line up or down. Right now, it isn't as, as exuberant as it was six months ago. Maybe in, I, I suspect that in six months from now it'll be different than it is today. The fact of the matter is, what will do more than anything else to get the economy in some decent shape is get a budget resolution by the, the 20th of September for the next year, not six months or three months, but the next year, and three or four weeks later, get the debt ceiling done and find some solution to both raising the debt ceiling and cutting some, some tr changing some of the entitlement programs so that there is more of a belief that we are on a better road to the economy, economy and the strength we want, rather than what we've been doing the last few years, which is just, you know, just the last minute trying to save ourselves. Call to There's another reason. There's another reason why we're where he's going out on the on the road. He had there have been meetings in the White House with the senators that had dinner with him months ago, and those those talks have broken down. I think they thought they could bring these people in, they could get some sort of an agreement and we would move forward. That hasn't happened, and I think the White House is pretty doggone angry where they thought they had something going, and all of a sudden it disappears. Alan Moore. You know, a lot of people have said, why is the president absent without leave on this issue for the last many months? I don't think it's a credibility question. I don't think he has said, hey, we're doing really great. It's, hey. There are signs of improvement, but for God's sakes, everything is super fragile. We have to dive in and make some harder choices, tougher decisions. Now, his his choices are, are, are different from what Republicans who want something to happen, what theirs are. Uh, this is not easy, but but I don't I don't think that he's somehow changed his tune. He was never saying everything's uh, everything's great. He's it's a it's a delicate dance you have to do when you're talking about the economy because you don't want to tilt things in the wrong direction. But he has never, for a moment, suggested, "Wow, things are really looking up. Things are great." Bob Hines. In the last year or so, I guess we must have seen or heard three or four senior political citizens on both sides of the aisle say that, you know, the Congress has got to begin to learn how to work itself out. We've got to get back to being able to make deals. Interestingly enough, Bob Dole had his birthday just several year, days ago, 90 years old. Former senator of uh, four terms, I think. Congressman. When I was in the House, he was a young congressman. Boy, am I old. And uh, he, is, he was a Senate leader on the Republican side. 
he was presidential candidate, and he was, I think it's relatively fair to say that he was one of the best deal makers you ever saw in the Senate. He had an interesting comment on his nine, during his 90th birthday celebration when he was being talking to reporters. And he said, in effect, what we all know, Congress is broken, they've lost the ability to uh, compromise, and, and until they do that, we are not going to solve our problems. And I, and I obviously, that's, that's such an obvious thing, it's almost silly to say it, but it's interesting to hear a man who spent almost his entire adult life in the political process in in Washington, and it was highly regarded as a deal maker, is saying something that everybody needs to hear. Maybe when someone of his uh, credentials has heard that, maybe a few of the younger members might say, gee whiz, maybe there is something to this idea of actually talking to somebody on the other side of the aisle. But Denise Krepp, yesterday the president came out during a uh, meeting with his Organization for Action which is his sub-party package, uh, motivational group, whatever you want to call it. But uh, the Organization for Action came out and said we're establishing uh, Action August. Part of that is his economy, but part of that, a large part of his Action August, is he's got to go out and resell Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Is the Affordable Care Act especially with it being on the ropes right now, as far as implementation, can he sell a solid economic message as well as save the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare? Wow. Uh, <laughs> that's going to be difficult. And it's going to be very difficult because when you go into meetings with folks, you want them to remember maybe one, two, possibly three things. So. If he goes into a meeting and says economy and health care, he's going to get questions on one or the other, but nobody is going to be happy. And that's what's going to be very difficult for him to be able to go out and sell that message. Um, I think, however, if he could sell Obamacare and tie it to jobs, then he might actually be able to, uh, to tie both of those together. I mean, when you start talking about Obamacare and the jobs, not only are we all going to be getting health care, but that health care is going to create jobs. And it's not just going to create jobs in the Not according room. to a lot of small businesses. There are a lot of small businesses that the Republicans are counting that are closing because they just can't deal with the impact of Obamacare. Well, it they may have the impact, but it's going to create jobs in the technology sector. Now because you have to create the software to process all of this information. You have to have new instruments to process all of this information. So the tech folks are going to boom on that. But that's a minor sector. No, in, it is not. Uh, no, I disagree. Let me give you the best. I mean, because you know my, my background is on the security side. Right. Okay. After 9-11, when we put in all of those laws and regulations that say you had to have technology at all the airports, technology at all the air, at the uh, seaports, technology in the uh, rail station, technology everywhere, that created a huge increase in technology for a lot of companies. And, but, but, but as somebody who came from that industry who benefited from those regulations on the Homeland Security side, and even coming from companies that are eyeing the IT health market, that's a blip. The jobs that were created weren't there. The jobs that were supposed to be created after Homeland Security really weren't there. 
we're going to see the same blip, I think, in uh, in the IT health side. But you're still talking about a larger issue, Alan Moore, of you can have these large companies like your Boeing's, your Accenture's, your uh, General Dynamics, your North Grumman's, your SEIC's, who focus on this stuff. But the ones that create jobs are your small business owners who can't afford Obamacare or the current state of the economy to survive. Well, we're we're, we're going to find out what the impact is on business. I would I would challenge your assertion that businesses are shutting down now. Business, because I don't see any evidence of that. What I do see is is evidence that businesses are beginning to structure, modify, change the way they operate in anticipation of rules that are only months away now in in early night in early 2014. Um, I, the big political problem for the president on Obamacare is that he made many promises about how costs are going to go down and people are going to be able to keep what they had before. Both of those are turning out to be patently false. He's aware of that. He's also aware that the, that the, that the Republicans, some Republicans are beginning to say, we are not going to provide any more funds for the implementation of, of Obamacare. And that's going to be part of this end of September debate of debt limit debate, and he's trying to position himself on that. I think that's a loser for Republicans. He is going to go. He's going to go down. He's going to go down to with a bullet or something. If if that's a bad. Bad enough. Bad enough. But, but the views of Alan Moore do not necessarily reflect. He's not from politics. He's he's going to going to go down with his with his last breath defending Obamacare. Obamacare is not going to go away. Might it get postponed a little bit here and there, like his mandate on employers? It could, but that's not the focus of, of his economic message. His economic message is that we continue to be in an unsustainable economic situation as a country. The deficits are too large, and, they, and, and that is not sustainable over time. The recovery is not rapid enough. We have to be prepared to make some very hard decisions and choices. He can, again, Obamacare could be a talking point. We think that'll help, but that's really a second point. But Bob Hines, it, it, it's still it, it's still a hard sell for the president to talk about to talk about Obamacare and creation of jobs and stimulating an economy in the same message. He's in particular going to areas like. Missouri, Florida, the Midwest, that is going to be something everybody's going to throw up their hands and say, we've heard this. Tell us something new. What new could possibly come out of the message of Obamacare in a, in a growing economy? There's a rule that says if you want somebody to hear it and understand it, first you tell them what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them. Then you tell them what you told them. I think that's what the president is doing. That's what I think. Now, there's something interesting, uh, a little bit off the subject, but it's, it, it's, it's part of Obamacare. I read an article recently that shocked me. Uh, it was an article about the Obamacare and the um, putting off for a year part of the statute. And then the article quoted the statute as saying, the program shall go, you know, the uh, the uh, employer uh, mandate. mandate must go into effect on such and such a date. And 
So the question is, under the Constitution, can the President of the United States unilaterally say there's a provision in this statute that I am going to vitiate? Now, I haven't seen anybody opine on that before, and I thought to myself, I, I'm sure he can't do that constitutionally, but I'm not so sure that the statute may be as clear may be as clear as what this this constitutional argument uh, was in the in the article I saw. But it's a, it's an interesting point. Alan Moore, one minute last yes. word. Typically, these laws will include some some general language that gives the the president waiver authority of certain provisions if he finds it in the national interest. I would be surprised if there isn't some language to that effect uh, here. No one. He's not getting a big broad challenge that what he what he just did was unconstitutional. What the Republicans are trying to do is piggyback on it and say, we've postponed that mandate. Let's also postpone the individual mandate. Well, we're going to let that be the last word. Uh, we are awaiting, uh, as we watch our friends over at CNN here in Shelley's back room, we're awaiting a press conference by Anthony Weiner at 5 o'clock to discuss the latest round of texts and selfies that have gone out on the Internet, and it's just going to be a flaming train wreck. But... When we come back, we want to talk about the politics in New York City. The rebirth of Anthony Weiner, the rebirth of, 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 uh, of Governor Spitzer. What are they thinking up there? This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. By the way, it's happy hour here at Shelley's. We're going to order our drinks and our cigars. We'll see you at the top of the hour. Stay with us. The dirty. Happy Hour on Backroom Politics is sponsored by Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., America's premier cigar tavern. Stay with us as the roundtable continues after we order our drinks, order our cigars, and get ready for the second hour of Backroom Politics. Stay with us. We'll be back in two minutes.
we're back here live at Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Uh, this is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Folks, uh, if you've got children listening right now, you might want to change the channel or turn them away or let them go watch Teletubbies for a second because we're going to talk a little smut, political smut. And when we talk about political smut, you can't mention political smut without talking about uh, the former governor of New York, uh, Governor Spitzer, and former Congressman Anthony Weiner, candidate for mayor of the great city of New York. Okay, so we're awaiting a 5 o'clock press conference from Anthony Weiner, whereas he will address the latest rounds of selfies that have uh, popped up on the Internet, including a picture at thedirty.com. Kids, I'm not kidding. That's the name of the website, thedirty.com. And there is a pixelated picture of Anthony Weiner and his male genitalia. Um, it is completely mind-blowing that Anthony Weiner is actually leading in the polls for the mayorship in New York. And you could have possibly the two highest positions, the mayor and the controller of the city of New York, being occupied by two disgraced politicians. Let's start off with let's start off with Anthony Weiner. Okay, um, Bob. No, not me. All right, Denise. Denise, I'll go to you as we watch the breaking news. I'm the female coming out of. We're, we're waiting for Anthony Weiner to come to the podium on CNN, but it's mind blowing to me. How does Anthony Weiner still have? political viability after everything that he's done. Uh, Alan Moore, what was the name he used in his uh, sex things? Carlos Danger. Carlos, how does Carlos Danger, a.k.a. Anthony Weiner, still politically viable? I don't know, Justin. How does he get Mark Stanford here in this, as a current member of Congress? I, as a female touche. and a woman, I'm sorry, I'm that, all right. I don't understand this guy. I honestly don't understand how you can cheat on your wife. You can do as many things as you apparently want to do, but you can still get elected to be a mayor, be a congressman. This is ridiculous. Alan Moore. You know, uh, uh, when we when we look at the big three, if you will. Of, uh, <laughs> oh, you're not talking about Anthony's picture, obviously. He's got the big. He's the big one. So we 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 got we got Anthony Carlos Danger Weiner, and we've got we've got Elliot Spitzer, we got Mark Sanford. Believe me, this is no defense of Mark Sanford, but if you create a hierarchy here of a guy who falls in love and he's actually engaged to be married to this woman, embarrassed the state, embarrassed his wife, humiliating, terrible behavior. Spitzer's, in my judgment, is worse because he's consorting with hookers, which is which is against the law. And then you got Anthony Weiner, which curiously may not break the law, but it is so weird and strange and outside the realm of most of our, our of our knowledge base and experience that that his is sort of the, the most curious of all. I don't know his wife. She is supposed to be a lovely woman. Homa is really a wonderful woman. My heart breaks for her because she is being humiliated still again. Um, some of this guy's stuff apparently was occurred that he was sending out as Carlos Danger was occurring after he resigned from Congress. And Bob, that is mind-blowing to me. You would think that especially 
after you've been sent away from Congress, you've been rowed out of D.C. on a rail, essentially, you've been publicly humiliated, and to think that you would go and run for the mayor's office of arguably the most powerful city in the world and then still send pictures of yourself on the internet knowing that somebody's going to find this? This defies all logic. Bob, you've had to put out crises before, but this is a <laughs> crisis that even I can't comprehend. Some people's egos is so great that they think they can get away with anything. And if they get caught once, they can say they're sorry and they can do it again and get, try to get away again. I am convinced that, people, that there are people like that, and he is one of them. Carl Tuvin. Anthony Weiner, for the last eight to ten years, has dreamed, has worked, has plotted to be the mayor of New York City. Uh, he thought that he could come out of this and everything would be fine. He would do a Mayakopa, he would apologize, he would do all this. I think that this this really puts a, a pin in his balloon because I don't see how at this point he's going to be able to survive this situation. I am I am absolutely stunned that his wife has stayed with him through all this. Alan Moore. I think a really interesting question here is going to be what did his wife know and when did she know it? She knew that he had to resign in disgrace she was pregnant at the time. He had to beg her forgiveness, talk to her, apparently get some counseling. You would think that once it came out and you resigned in disgrace and went humbly uh, on your hands and knees to your wife asking for forgiveness, you would think that even though this is really, truly weird stuff he was doing, that at that point you would have stopped it. Now, he didn't stop it, apparently. It continued. He says that his wife has forgiven him. Has she? Did she know that the stuff continued after, after he, left he Congress. asked for her forgiveness and after he left Cong Cong Congress and embarrassed himself and her? I don't know. It'll be really interesting. Sad. This is a tragic story, but, but it'll be interesting to see what she says what? now and whether this was included in... Her forgiveness of it. But, but he, then he, here's the funny thing about this: is, in, in all seriousness, you've got a, a serious mayor's race going on in New York City, where Anthony Weiner is pulling higher than the uh, than the chairman of the city council, Christine Quinn. Christine Quinn has been literally running for mayor with the blessing of Mayor Bloomberg and other large politicos in New York City. This is a woman that has bled blue, orange, and white forever and legitimately could be another great mayor in a line of very strong mayors, starting with Giuliani to Bloomberg and now Quinn. How is Quinn not gaining the traction that you would expect and having to go head-for-head -head polling numbers with, for lack of a better term, a, a self-involved egotist like Anthony Weiner. Because I think some people aren't happy with their sexuality. What? <laughs> I'll say it. I, I think that there are some folks that are not happy that she has a female partner. And I, I think that you have some folks, in, and they're here in D.C., they're up in New York, that would say, I would much rather have a guy who took photos of himself 
instead of having a mayor that's elected. Well, I mean, this brings up a very, very big point, Carl Tubin. I mean, if you're talking about, I would rather see a pixelated picture of Anthony Weems' member than have a legitimate, a legitimate person from a legitimate career at the city council in Christine Quinn. The fact that she's a lesbian, we have open lesbian mayors right now. We can go to Atlanta and look, and we've got an openly gay mayor. Uh, we, we can go to several cities and look. Key West, San Francisco, have all had openly gay mayors. Why is New York different? I think, I, first of all, New York is always different than any place else, number one. Number two, <clears throat> I think that people are going to take a second look at, at Anthony Weiner and I think a lot of these people are going to switch back to uh, Ms. Quinn, and she will be the next mayor of New York. Um, and I, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, Hillary Clinton opened up an office in Washington, and guess who's part of that office? Wiener's wife. And I, I just don't know how this thing is, is going to survive in, in, in some instances. But, but Bob Hines, if, if by chance, the residents of the city of New York were to re were to elect Anthony Weiner as mayor. Does that bring a whole question of credibility to the mayor's office and city hall? It certainly is going to cause a lot of bad jokes for a long time. I mean, it's I and I I cannot believe that he will be elected. I would be willing to to make a bet that a week from today. His numbers will have dropped 20 to 25 percent. Whatever his number is today, I bet it goes down. Call to it. There's also another thing here. <clears throat> you know, on the West Coast in San Diego, something is playing out with a good friend of mine, Bob Filner. And I, I never knew anything about this. People have asked me, "You're a good friend of his?" I said, "No, I, I didn't see this coming." And 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 Bob probably will be. Um, my city council kicked out of the mayor of the uh, mayor's, mayor's office. office, and you know, do, does New York want to take the chance of a, of a of a mayor who all of a sudden has a, an emotional thing where he wants to send these pictures out again and have that fall on the city when he's elected if he's elected mayor? But we, you know, I mean, we haven't even talked yet about Elliot Spitzer, the former governor of New York, who was thrown out because he was sleeping with hookers here in Washington, D.C., over at the now infamous Mayflower Hotel. Uh, Bob Hines. I think, it was, I think it was the Jefferson Hotel. No, it was the Mayflower. It was the Mayflower. It was the Mayflower. Stand correct. No, no, no. There is there, actually the most popular... The most popular requested room at the Mayflower is the Elliott Spitzer room, believe it or not. Well, see, I can understand so what why. What a disappointment it is when people go and stay there. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can understand Elliott Spitzer not only was working with hookers, but uh, he was trying to save the city money by going to a cheaper hotel. Okay. Right. Oh, wow. Good point. <laughs> it was Dick Morris. Another scandal. Another scandal. So, there are well, so many good ones. But, but, but Bob Hines, this has got to call into question the information or the almost the the self-responsibility of people of looking at the people who they vote for to govern them, especially in a city like New York. 
Why especially in New York? I mean, really, we have people all over the country getting elected in various offices who are really not the best people and the best candidate in losers. It may be because they're more uh, uh, charismatic. Uh, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, I don't think there's a person at this table who doesn't know of a number of political offices and races that has been won in recent years by people who are by far not the best candidate. They have won, they have continued to win, and they are not, they are not that good a public servant. I mean, Anthony Weiner. People just people just tend to vote for people they like. I mean, Denise Crap, you, you worked in you worked in the House at the same time Anthony Weiner served as as the uh, congressman from New York City. Uh, his record wasn't exactly stellar in in the House as far as truly representing the folks from his district in New York City. Well, it may not have been stellar, but he had the money behind him to be running and. The money it now takes to run as the opponent to the incumbent is extremely high. And so if you're going to have to overcome that barrier, you're going to have to do that with money, you're going to have to do it in contact. And that's something that a lot of good people aren't willing to do because they look at a race and say, I can't do it, it's too expensive, I don't want to put myself through it because I'm not going to win. Carl Tubin, you're shaking your head. Well, I'm shaking my head because I just just think that, that Anthony Weiner, it's over, and and you know, his office was very very hard to deal with, and you had a you had to go in with a New York angle, in his in his district, in order to get in there and see anybody, and it really was it really was a, a shame. But again, I'll say that everything he did was for a pathway to be mayor of New York. But Bob. This has got to be a wake-up call for people to start taking a more proactive role in the way that they're going to be governed. Uh, if this isn't a wake-up call, what does the future hold for us? Well, let us hope that it, it, in New York at least, it will make more people seriously look at the candidates and not just say, oh, I know that name. You know, he or she is a good guy or a gal. You know, I know who that is, and I'm going to vote for her, or she's in the area, he's in the right party as opposed to the best candidate. If people actually voted who the best candidates were, I suspect the uh, the Congress would probably turn over by at least a factor of one third. Really? Yes. So, now that, that's a that's a pretty big charge to the electorate here in the United States to say, hey, folks, wake up. You know, it's a crazy country we have, and, and uh, uh, I guess we we make room for everybody. But we, we'll, we'll, here we are. We didn't, you know, when we sat down here at four o'clock, we knew nothing about Anthony Weiner's latest, and now all of a sudden, we we are we are all over it because it's it just captures uh, our our attention. It is so. Strange and bizarre. I, I think that 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 unless that, that his only possible savior savior now is his wife, and uh, she's the one I'll be really interested. But to, can can to can Homa can Homa be the one that are her shoulders big enough 
to carry his political career well, no, no, in the mayor's I, office. I, I'm not saying they're they're big enough. I'm only saying that his only hope, given new revelations on what occurred reportedly after this was public and after he resigned in disgrace and begged her forgiveness. His only hope is her. That doesn't mean even if she's all in, knew every last detail that she can save him. It's just that she's his only hope now because he is a laughing stock. And one of the things that politicians don't like to be is the subject of late night comedians every single day, every week. There's a very few, one of them, former President Clinton, who can survive it. And even now, he can he, he's used as a joke. He's he's done some great stuff, uh, and and it's pretty amazing that he was able to survive. He's the exception. Most people cannot handle that. Kind Denise, of but Denise, oh, oh, you know, talking with a lot of politicos in Europe and and in other parts of the world, uh, especially in Europe, they say Americans are too uptight when it comes to stuff like this. You have a you have a French president that is not married, living with his, at one time his mistress, now just his girlfriend who has children. Uh, you have a, uh, you have Sarkozy who had all kinds of issues behind him. Are we in fact too uptight? Would this be a big deal in Europe? Absolutely. I, I, I think so. And I don't think that the Europeans are as loose as some people might think they would be. I mean, the Berlusconi trials are, are, are just the tip of what they're looking at right now. You have a lot of Italians that are saying, this is ridiculous. We don't want to be known as the country of the bonga bonga party. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we don't want to be that. So you've got the Italians looking at that. You've got the French looking at theirs. They're, they're getting conservative as well. Carl Tillman. Just real quick. <clears throat> I was thinking, thinking about Spitzer and uh, and all. Spitzer is different in this way. He had an infidelity. He had a mild couple with his wife. They're together. They're still a family. But you've got to look at Elliot Spitzer and what he did as as Attorney General of New York. He is one of the only people who tried to go after the banks and, and people who were doing wrong things. Very few who have been indicted. And he's now coming back, and he's running on that record, and, and he's running on the fact that he wants to use his office to do the same thing. And I think that's why he's got a, a, a big lead he has over his opponent, and probably the elected control of New York. But also, this could have an impact on his race, and we'll just have to wait and see what the polls say. Alan Moore. It's certainly true, as Carl says, that, that Spitzer had a, had, a, had a fairly impressive record. When you dig into it, there were some interesting aspects that made it not entirely perfect, but it was a significant record. Anthony Weiner didn't have much of a record. Uh, he, he left very small uh, footprints uh, uh, afterwards, but Spitzer went off with a prostitute. Whatever one thinks about how horrible that is, that has been going on now, in the world yeah, but now, for, for a very long time. Yeah, but now, wait a minute. Elliot Spitzer had a certain level of hypocrisy, too, though. I, I don't deny he went that. After, he went after the porn industry, the adult industry in New York City. He went after escort you know, services. I, I, I don't even recall that he... I don't remember they were, that he, they were his major targets. But all I'm saying is, in the standards of the United States, being with a prostitute... 
is not a capital crime, except with a lot of wives. If you have an affair of the heart, which Samford did, you know that's particularly painful. But in a way, it's it, it it's not it's <laughs> at least there was one person with an objective, horrible, embarrassing, and humiliating uh, as it was. Um, and then and then you got and, and if we're talking about Europe where they understand mistresses, they would say with a Sanford, oh, yeah, but he shouldn't have hit it. He should have been able to just have it out in public. And prostitutes, yeah, our men will, you know, boys will be boys kind of thing. Um, I don't defend it. I'm just trying to get my hands around what, what I what I understand the European has to say. But I agree with Denise that the wiener thing, they would say, what? This guy is sick. Um, and he didn't even get any sex out of it. <laughs> you know, he, that, we, that we know of. He, 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 was, he was creepy. He was strange and odd. He was outside of the mainstream of bad boy behavior, and that makes people really uncomfortable. <laughs> it's a totally bizarre situation. Hey, when we come back, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to monitor. We're waiting for... Anthony Weiner's press conference here, and we'll we'll break in when he gets to the podium. Can't imagine what he could possibly say. Uh, but when we come back, we're going to talk open forum. But we're going to start off with the Liz Cheney effect. Liz Cheney announced that she's going to be giving one of the great guys, Mike Enzi, uh, a, a a run uh, in a primary for the Senate seat out of Wyoming. Uh, Bob is cringing as we talk about it. We're going to talk about that and other things when we come back for our final half hour of Backroom Politics. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. One more once. D.C. for the final segment of today's Backroom Politics. I'm going to start off real quick. I'll throw this out there. Liz Cheney last week, the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, has announced that she's going to be seeking the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate uh, in the great state of Wyoming, going against longtime Senate incumbent uh, Mike Enzi. Uh, Mike Enzi, uh, a, a, a really solid guy. A lot of people like him on both sides of the aisle. A guy that can work both sides of the aisle and a good deal maker. Uh, but there's a big movement in Wyoming that's moving forward, getting uh, a lot of publicity. Liz Cheney's out there in front saying she's going to win this. Uh, Bob Hines, what are your thoughts on this? This has got to be a shock. I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed that she has decided to run. Why? Uh, because she has very she has no no real political experience. She has lived most of her life in Virginia. No problem there. You know, you move back home. That's all right. The fact of the matter is she doesn't really uh, she doesn't really know a whole lot about Wyoming the way someone who's lived there for forty some years would. As and she is about I think what, forty four, forty five years old. Right. Uh, certainly she is uh, an, she's a smart lady. She's attractive. I think she'd be an attractive candidate, is my point. But quite frankly, Mike Enzi is 69. He'd be running it one more time. He's a very solid guy. He is he is one of those workers rather than one of those showboats that we do get sometimes in Congress. Uh, and uh, I think Alan probably knows him better than I do, but I will work with him on a few times. And, found him to be a hard-working, solid guy who uh, tried to find solutions to problems. And it's unfortunate that uh, the Cheney's running because it's going to it's going to divide the party very clearly. It'll divide the party in Wyoming, which is not a good thing. And uh, we may well lose the seat, not because we have a bad candidate, but we've lost the Senate. I mean, obviously, uh, Alan Moore, Liz Cheney's got the full support of her dad, former Vice President Dick Cheney. Is, is is this a sign that a Dick Cheney is trying to become the big rainmaker, the next Karl Rove, the the next Haley Barber in the party? That he's going to be pulling the puppet strings for the party? No, no. He's, he's a loyal dad. But let, let me say this: 
I love Mike Enzi. I think he's a fantastic, uh, underappreciated senator, um, and uh, and I think he's widely respected and liked back in Wyoming. Um, I will also say that I don't have any problem with uh, with with candidate Cheney uh, jumping in here. It wasn't very many years ago that we had a brand new uh, United States senator who had spent some years in the state legislature in a particular state, and he decided that he was going to run for president of all things. And there were a bunch of people who had their candidate, their favorite candidate, a woman who happened to be named Hillary Clinton. And there was outrage in some circles that this upstart, Barack Obama, would would deign to step in and challenge for the nomination this woman who seemed so perfect and her time had come. You know, in politics, you take if you're willing to 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 throw your lot in, roll the dice, take your chances, work your back your backside off, raise money, take all sorts of flack, more power to you. It 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 it, it keeps the system churning. It keeps people on their toes. There's no easy races. I wish it weren't happening, but I don't have any quarrel with her right to do it. I don't attribute it to to her dad or blame him. I'm guessing that he was a voice of, of caution here, not, yeah, jump in. But once she said, I think this is my best shot, he would say, then I'm with you. Bob Hines. I don't have any trouble with somebody having ambition and wanting to run for the Senate. No problem at all there. I just have a feeling here that here's someone who has very little uh, experience, who has uh, a, a famous name, and that's perfectly appropriate to run with a famous name. So many people do it, you can't count them on, on and the fingers of everybody's hands here at the table. But I don't see why she couldn't have waited because... You, it's a matter of wait your turn. Wait, your for, time, wait for your time. Yeah, yeah. The fact of the matter is, you know, the, if you want, to, if you want to see, the re, if you're a Republican and you want to see the Republicans get as many senators and as hold as many seats as possible, you really don't want to just throw a very experienced guy who has won three times, each time by a larger percentage, he's well over 75 percent in the last time. I mean, there's no reason to say anything except Mike Enzi is the best thing you could possibly have and there's another time to get there. Carl Tubin. I do not know who the Democrats have in Wyoming. <clears throat> the only thing I do know is that fractious primaries, and this could turn into that, make better chances for a Democrat to take over uh, as Senator in Wyoming, which hasn't been which hasn't happened in a while, and uh, this this possibly could play out in that scenario. But, but Denise, I mean, like going up what Carl was saying, this has got to be attractive for the Democrats, but you're going to have to find a Max Bacchus-type Democrat to win that race, and that animal may not exist in a place like Wyoming. Oh, I really do that 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 animal does. In fact, if I had my dream candidate, my dream candidate would be somebody who was a veteran, somebody who had worked in the local legislature, and a female. 
because if you're going to go up against Cheney's daughter, we're going to need a female, and we'll need somebody with experience. But that's assuming that she wins the nomination against a proven, well-liked, well-respected senator like Mike Enzi. Right, but I think it's never too early to start planning for things that might happen, and again, that is a dream candidate for the Democrats. Carl Tubin. The other thing is, is that you got to remember that Mike Enzi had some problems over the last several years, and, and that might be exploited to the point where it, if he wins, it's going to harm him in the general election. Bob Hines? Nothing to say except I'm forensic. But we're, but uh, remarkably, though, in another turn of events, Sam Nunn's daughter has yes. said that she is going to run for office uh, and possibly setting up a very contentious primary on the Republican well, side. Well, I think in the Democratic uh, primary, we now have two congressmen and a and a uh, the, the, the daughter of the, of the former senator. Right. Which means you're going to have a very I mean, nobody is going to probably get 50 percent, or maybe I don't know. I don't know what the law is in in, in Georgia, but it'll be a plurality the first time, and if there's a runoff, somebody's going to get a majority. Alan Moore. Um, I, I don't know uh, uh, Michelle Nunn. I think she's uh, she's got. Uh, uh, I think she runs the Point of Lights Foundation, which would which would be a pretty big job, and that would be interesting. But her her dad, who was uh, who was a, who was a popular uh, Democrat, but moderate Democrat, if you will, uh, has not served in the Senate in a very long time. So if you're trying to use coattails. Of your dad, there's a long period of time from uh, from when he was uh, recognized in the news, remembered, and, and so on. Um, it'll help her in some circles. It'll help her raise money. Money's a big a big part of it. Uh, the, the the Cheney name, I think, is still popular in, uh, in in Wyoming, but not universally popular. It's also uh, controversial. I do think that if for any reason, I don't expect this to happen. If uh, if, uh, if Cheney should uh, should beat Enzi, I think she would get elected uh, to the Senate. I don't think the Republicans would would then turn on her. I just don't see the reasoning for them to get behind a person who's going to be called with some legitimacy a carpetbagger who who really spent uh, the, the 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 overwhelming uh, amount of her life growing up in Virginia. Only the last year was she back in Wyoming. And, and 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 she's not running against a guy who's 89 years old like Frank Lautenberg would have been had he not died. I mean, he's 67. He's he's not an ancient guy, and he's very productive and very attentive to the state and very decent. And just because a guy is not controversial uh, doesn't mean he's not popular and well liked. And Wyoming's an interesting state because the population is so small, just about 600,000 people. Most people have seen him, have had some kind of interaction with him because he travels the state and he's been in, in office there for, for 18 years. And he came up the old way. He was a mayor of Casper, Wyoming. She comes in, locked, dives in and says, I think I'd like to be senator. There's there's a lot of challenges that she's going to have to overcome. Denise Kratt. 
I'd like to go back to the Georgia example. Um, Georgia is a very, very interesting state. I mean, the last Democratic senator that Georgia had was a paraplegic. He was a Vietnam-era veteran who lost a significant number of limbs. And what they did to him, and I'm going to say this, is shame on all of you, and all of you being some of the folks that trashed him. So I would love to see a solid Democrat come in, but I hope that she has learned from what they did, her, the opponents of Max Cleland did to Max Cleland, and they improved this race, and it's a lot cleaner, because that last one was horrible. Uh, call to the problem, <clears throat> The problem in, the, uh, in, in, in that race is the Democratic Central Campaign Committee was so convinced that Max would win out over Chambliss that all this stuff didn't matter, that Max would win out. They were absolutely wrong and caught everyone by surprise. Well, we've got breaking news right now. Uh, CNN is covering uh, Anthony Weiner's press conference in New York. Uh, Anthony Weiner's taking the podium. We'll update you as to what he could possibly say. Oddly enough, Homa, his wife, is right there by his side. Uh, um, absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. She doesn't look too happy either. She is not no, but showing but a lot of love. But she's there. And well, that's important. No, that's, that, that shows you how strongly she feels about this. It got so bad after Spencer. I don't know if you guys remember. They started a new television show called The Good Wife. The Good Wife was the lady whose husband had cheated, and they'd done a complete TV series on this. I am so tired of seeing the wives standing next to their husbands who have cheated on them. Well, Mark Sanford's wife did. Mark Sanford, she, she went to the other side of the state. And not only she did, I would have loved to see, I like what Tiger Woods' wife did more. What, 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 with the six iron? My Absolutely. God. Uh, if you're going to do that to me, then God help you. But no. he, I, I got to tell you something. If you look at the coverage right now uh, of this press conference, Homa looks about as distant from Anthony Weiner right now as could possibly, possibly, uh, in a press conference. It is an awkward, awkward scene that we're looking at right now on CNN. Alan Moore. She's in a very difficult spot. If he has to step aside in disgrace and loses, that means. He'll be home all the time, and she wants him out of the house. No, I'm not sure she'll be. I don't think she'll be home all the time because she'll be in D.C. spending a lot of time in D.C. with, with, with Hillary Clinton. With Hillary Clinton. Yeah. yeah, very true. Very true. Who's going to take care of the baby? Maybe, maybe, maybe Anthony, if he's if he's home with well, nothing that to do. That sounds like a dangerous idea. You just, to, you just need to take his cell phone away from him. Baby nap time? What am I going to do? I have an idea. I'll take a picture of my genitalia. I can tell you right now, I'm looking at this picture of her, looking at him. And he's, it, it, to me, she's saying, do you need the SOB? I got to tell you something. As we're watching the coverage of CNN, there's a guy in whack-a-mole mode that is literally standing up behind a cubicle behind Anthony Weiner and his wife, and he just pops up randomly. It's hysterical. I have a feeling that Christine Quinn right now is just laughing her rear end off. So it's Saturday Night Live. Oh, oh. oh my God. 
No, no, but their new season hasn't started yet. Maybe they'll have to inject a special. They'll have to inject something. This, this one you don't want to miss. This, this, uh, is, this is great. But you can't wait till September for this. Oh, 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 this is great TV, kids. You can't pay for this kind of entertainment. You, you'll definitely want to tune in to Comedy <laughs> yeah, Central. Yeah, I don't want you to leave. I don't want you to leave backroom politics. But if you can turn on CNN or MSNBC right now and watch this press conference, it is it is an awkward, bizarre conference. With a guy's They're posting a quote where he says, I'm surprised more things haven't come out sooner. <laughs> Fabulous. Who is running his I, campaign? But you know what that he must is. But that one of the things that must mean that if he thought that would happen, he must have talked to his wife about it, which may be the only reason she is willing to stand there, because she knew about it before it broke. I'm just looking at the guy standing oh, yeah. behind the cubicle wall. <laughs> <laughs> it's hysterical. He's got it. It's hysterical. It's whack-a-mole. It's it's fantastic TV. It's whack-a-mole. I know this doesn't make for great radio, folks, but I wish I wish you guys continue this. Oh, here's Dwight. And here comes Homa. Here comes Homa and the guy behind the wall. That's amazing. Uh, I can't watch like watching a train wreck, folks. When when um, getting back to the primary and uh, the Liz Cheney effect, and now the daughter of Sam Nunn, when when we look at this, we're starting to see, and we've seen it for a while, the primary being the tool. It has now become a verb. I will primary you. This has got to be disturbing to central parties across the country. Bob Hines. Well, I think Alan said something that is that is truly correct when he said that it doesn't really make any difference from the standpoint of who wins the election in November, whether it's Ms. Cheney or Ms. or Senator Enzi, because Wyoming is, is probably the most Republican state in the union. But Carl, and so he, they're bound to get a Republican there. I'm. My only concern was that the idea of, you know, in effect, jumping over the rope and saying, I want my turn a little bit early before I've spent more than even a year and a half in Wyoming. I grant you my family's lived here, but I haven't. I think it'd be nice if, if, if Wyoming knew her better before they were asked to vote for her. But Carl Tubin, former executive director of a state party, when you see primaries like this pop up, that's got to give heartburn to the state party and to the national party to an extent. You're now giving the advantage to the opposition. How is it that the state party hasn't gotten involved and tried to talk sense in Liz Cheney, or would they? We don't know if they. We don't know whether they have or have not. Uh, I think in the case of the Cheneys, it's 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 he he figures if my daughter wants to run, as Alan was saying before. They looked at all, he probably discussed all the pros and cons with her and, and, and how this could turn out. But I think, and there, these are two families that are, are well steeped in Wyoming history, been there for a long time. And I think if, if this thing comes out and it's just a big bust, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to help the Democrats take back that seat. They may get 15% if they get on a roll. I'm sorry. I'm watching the press conference with Anthony Weiner. The guy behind the wall just waved to America as if he's literally 
He is literally photobombing Anthony Weiner's press conference. He is photobombing it. No question. Probably what's the name of the woman who was running for the with against him? Christine. Oh, Christine Quinn. Probably works for her. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. It's Forrest Gump. From Blog Talk Radio. We're we've lost control of the show. We we we've lost control of the show, folks. But this is hysterical. And and and, and you gotta think that at some point at some point a staffer's gotta go over there and choke him. <laughs> Who's running this campaign? Maybe, maybe the staff hey, another head. Hey, maybe running. his whole staff has resigned. Hey, I mean, hey, or they're brain dead. There's a, second, there's a second person up there. Oh, no, he's been up there. He's another, another whack-a-mole. There's the big one. Oh, oh, my God. Oh my. This is a disaster. He's got a whole face. By the way, to, to the folks... To the folks in Christine Quinn's office, it's Christmas. And for people who aren't sure what we're laughing at, so you've, got, you've got Anthony Weiner behind a bank of microphones. His wife, uh, Huma, is next to him, and she spoke, said a few words earlier saying it was worth it to stay in the marriage. We couldn't tell. We were just looking at, at printed words. And behind them, about five and a half feet tall, is a barrier. And what we're talking about is behind the barrier, we don't know what the room is, there are a couple of people. One of one, them, one of them is right there. To look up over, and we see his eyes and his head, part of his nose, and his glasses. And his glasses. Part, sometimes he will disappear, or we'll see just his hair. He's disappeared again. And now we see a guy behind him who's much farther away. The other guy is at least three feet or closer to them. So he appears, he goes away, he pops up again. It is strange. And maybe if we were hearing the words, we would be focused on every little syllable. But because we can't, we watch the guy from behind. Well, pop up, sit down. Anthony Weiner Anthony Weiner is now taking questions and the head is still there. I'm sorry. This this is gonna be the oddest it is the oddest, very, very strange. This is gonna be our oddest segment ever recorded, but this is also gonna be the most awkward press conference I've seen in politics. I in a long time. I have never seen anything that had so little control. Oh my god, and there he is again. <laughs> And, and the reader is saying, this is entirely behind me now. Yes. Yeah. This is, yeah. behind you. This is, this is entirely behind me, including the mysterious head. This is absolutely bizarre. Uh, we, Anthony Weiner is also now saying that uh, he admits now that sexting and the texting kept going after his departure from Congress. Uh, again, it, 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 it boggles the mind that he has got a second political breath in New York City. Just absolutely stunning. Um, but I still think that his numbers will be down 20%. Yeah, probably. Within a week. Well, the, the press conference has ended. The head has gone away. And no, no, he, now he's going to go free, Anthony Weiner. <laughs> Here comes the head. Hey, Here comes the head. Hey. hey. Guy in a polo shirt. That's amazing. Well, this has led us up to. This has led us up to. Tell me a story, which I I I I don't even know how we can tell a story better than this, but we'll try. 
This is a segment on the show where we talk about innuendo, buzz, rumor, going around, going around Washington, D.C. Denise Crabb, tell me a story. All right. The story I'm going to tell you about is called the Freedom of Information Act. Bloomberg has been doing some really interesting articles recently about FOIAs. They've been FOIAing the administration on travel costs. And some of the administration folks have said, you know, provided the information which they have to under law. And one of the administration folks said not only were they not going to get it, but that they could actually sue them to get it. Now, I, I bring this up because I, uh, I was talking to a very interesting lady last week about a document she asked a government agency for. And the government agency said, nope, not going to give it to you. You have to FOIA it. Well, folks, FOIAs cost money, and this administration, when it came out on the first day, said that it was going to be a more transparent administration. It's a little difficult to be a more transparent administration when you are telling people to FOIA it. But not only are you telling people to FOIA it, you're also paying contractors to process your FOIAs. The issue of processing FOIAs via contractors is going to get a lot more attention over the next couple of months. So keep an eye out for it. Remember, folks, it's FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. Ah, uh, Bob Hines, tell me a story. In recent days, there have been a few stories about why is everybody beating up on Speaker John Boehner? Which it was a topic I wanted to get to today. We'll, I know. We'll, we'll take that up next week. But I, I thought I was wienered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a horrible thought, isn't it? That's a horrible thought. Hey, that's a new line for people. He got wienered. Uh, but the reality, I think, is that the, the speaker is in a the most difficult position of any uh, any politician in in a, in Washington right now. Um, he has a, a a majority in the House that is substantial, but it is not reliable. Probably. There are, uh, if you take a look at about seven or eight of the key votes in the last year, uh, there are about 70, no, I'm sorry, 60 members who have voted against him at least half of the time of those votes, half of those votes. It is a problem that the Speaker has because the Tea Party people have yet to learn what the liberal Democrats who came into office in 1974 in the Watergate learned after about two or three terms, and that is, if you don't negotiate, you're not going to get any place, and we have a bunch of Tea Party people who, who, believe, who believe in principle very strongly, and I, I admire that, but you still have got, no matter how strong your principles are, you have got to be able, in order to go forward, to be willing to take 70%. Well, sixty-five percent. Is it is it a matter of that his own his own caucus is being unfair to the speaker, or is the media just piling on to the speaker? Well, it's easy to pile on the speaker if you're in the media when the members in the house are piling on the speaker, and that's what's really happening. I mean, the reality is there. We're going to talk about that next week because that's definitely a topic we need to bring up that we need some time with. Carl Tubin, tell me a story. Well, half of the story I think I told during the uh, during the program. But Hillary Clinton has opened up a Washington office. She has a um, staff of about seven or eight people. She she has a, a speechwriter and then another speechwriter who she used in the State Department on call. She's got advanced people. 
she's got a manager for the office and the manager who takes care of all the travel and all that. And uh, she's making about $200,000 for, um, for, for speech, plus the fact that she has a book which is supposed to come out in the summer of 2014. So she's got a big hair. She's doing what she wants to do. She's having a good time. She looks better. We'll see what happens. Interesting. Alan Moore, tell me a story. Yeah, last week I uh, I talked about uh, the unbelievable mistakes of uh, Virginia Governor Robert McDonald and, and his family um, in in uh, taking money, loans, gifts from uh, Star a, a, from a businessman in uh, in Virginia. This afternoon, um, the governor announced that he had repaid $120,000 to this man, plus interest. That was $70,000 to an enterprise that owns a couple of, of, of uh, beach rental properties that were underwater that he and his sister bought, and $50,000 that was loaned to his wife. He apologized for embarrassing uh, the state of Virginia. There was not a single solitary word of another nearly $50,000 that's also uh, an embarrassing part of this. $15,000 gift to one daughter for her wedding, $10,000 gift to another daughter, for her wedding, $15,000 shopping trip for his wife in New York City, and a $6,500 Rolex, apparently given as a gift to his wife so she could in turn give it to him. He is not out of the woods, but at least he's acknowledging he's in the woods. Um, he is trying to stay in office through November and not be run out of town on a rail. This is at least a start. There's a lot of evidence that he doesn't have a lot of spare cash floating around, and people are going to wonder, where'd you get the $123,000 or whatever it was uh, to pay this back? In the meantime, there's a new report uh, re regarding the Democratic candidate for governor, Terry McAuliffe, that, that the company to build, to, to build uh, green cars that he did not choose to locate in Virginia, but in instead chose to locate in Mississippi because it was a better deal for, for shareholders, and he got beat up on that in his debate this week for governor. One of the ways they were funding that was to get foreigners who want to move to America who got money to invest between half a million and a million if you do that as a foreigner, you get to the move to the front of the line for visas. That was one of the major funding sources for green tech. Well, it turns out that the people helping him put that piece together are including the number two person at the Department of Homeland Security are under investigation by the Justice oh, Department. Oh, you took my story! So, <laughs> you took my story! You got it. <clears throat> Yeah. No, 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 no. It, uh, apparently, let me follow up on that. Anyway, anyway, it's uh, there's a lot going on, a lot going on in Virginia. The governor's still in deep doo doo, and Terry McAuliffe maybe in more than we even realize. Let me let me follow up on that story because you took my story, Alan. The, the story is, uh, and, it, and it's now been released by Politico, is apparently the uh, the contention is that the Inspector General. And the Department of Homeland Security is investigating uh, green tech and Terry McAuliffe's involvement in green tech. The FBI has been briefed, according to Politico, on the investigation, but it appears that a senior official at the U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services 
uh, division of VHS may have helped inappropriately obtain an EB-5 visa for a lot of these donors. Uh, it is a serious, serious issue, enough to get an inspector general. That is going to be a very key point in the Virginia governor's race, and Terry McCollum is going to have to start doing some serious damage control, if he can, off of that. Just, no, go ahead. Just one, one little, one little uh, thing. The person they're looking at at, at DHS is the, is the nominee to be number two, a guy named uh, Alejandro Mayorkas. Oh, oh yes. This is, this is a government program that, <clears throat> that people are using to, to do this all over the country. It's not just Mississippi and it's not just his company. But this is a government program that specifies this. Well, the other part of the story is, and this is the story I want to break is, it also involves, this is also going to affect Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton's brother, Tony Rodham, is the head of this organization that went to CIS and went and got the visas at the head of the line. This is going to be a big story as it plays out. Bob Hines. It is amazing to me that Virginia, the birthplace of presidents, a place that, uh, you know, is has been relatively conservative in its voting record, even even uh, including the northern suburbs. You know, we have we have had pretty damn good government in Virginia, whether it's been conservative Republican or liberal Democrat. It's been solid and it's been relatively in the middle. You know, within within the forty yard lines, so to speak. It's amazing to me to see the quality, and I'm a, and I'm a Republican voter in Virginia, and I am struck by. By the two candidates that I have to choose between, and you, you normally it would seem to me to be a very easy thing to do. It is not because I have got two candidates in front of me, neither one of whom I feel comfortable with. The Attorney General Ken Cuccinelli and That's Terry right. McCall, former right. DNC chair. One of them is so conservative that uh, that it bothers me, and the other one is engaged in some activities <laughs> which are uh, chancy at best. And it just it just is it's something that's frustrating to me and I have thought about it and thought about it as I go, you know, as as we get close to the election. And I'm not so sure that my best vote is none of the above. Well, that's an option for you. It's, well, too it's bad not that, a good one. It's too bad the young Miss Cheney didn't decide to jump into the gubernatorial race. <laughs> <laughs> she might have won. She might have won that one. Well, she lived there longer. Yeah, true. She's got more residency history. Carl Tubin. This could get so bad that I might go over to Virginia and just run out to write it. There you go. Hey, there I'll vote go. for you, Carl. Oh, I'm going to write in Carlos Danger. <laughs> I want the guy behind the wall. Hey, on behalf of Denise Krep, Bob Hines, Carl Tubin, and Alan Moore, uh, Congressman Al is somewhere in the Caribbean. Just Boy, is he lucky. Yeah, is he lucky today. I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. Believe it or not, we'll be back here next week live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? This is sure as heck the place to be. It is today. Folks, we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.